Hi, this is Jackie Miller, your host of Out of Crazy Town, your guide to divorcing a narcissist. This is part one of a two-part show with guest Tracy Malone, the founder of NarcissistAbuseSupport.com. Tracy is dedicated to helping victims of narcissistic abuse heal and has a wealth of information on her site, as well as runs support groups, provides coaching, and has her own podcast as well. Tracy's book, You Can't Make This Shit Up, is due out soon, and she is here to share with us her own journey through the trials and tribulations of narcissistic abuse. Hello, Tracy Malone. Welcome to Out of Crazy Town, your guide to divorcing a narcissist. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to have you on today. Um, you are not only such an amazing person, you've been through your own trials and tribulations when it comes to narcissistic abuse. Um, you've coined the term Sir Thriver, which I love because folks out there that are surviving narcissistic abuse, um, the reason I'm doing this podcast, we want them to know that they can move on and not just survive, but thrive. And as I mentioned, you not only endured your own abuse, but you have gone on to now be a life coach specializing in all things narcissistic abuse, have your own podcast, Tracy Malone, Narcissist Abuse Survivor Coach. You've written many articles. You're a speaker on the subject, and uh, you can be found on YouTube and Facebook as well. Your website, NarcissistAbuseSupport.com, is an unbelievable resource for anything you want or need when it comes to narcissistic abuse support. And soon your much anticipated book is going to make its debut because you've helped thousands of people recover from narcissistic abuse. You've been able to compile a book with the, many of these unbelievable stories from your clients and uh, appropriately titled it, You Can't Make This Shit Up. And it's so true, you cannot. So I'm so excited because I wanted to invite you here to not only share your own story, but those you know of others that have endured abuse at the hands of a narcissist. And it's the reason I started my podcast. I wanted to let everyone out there know that is suffering this kind of abuse, that there are a community of us here that want to help you and support you and get you through and let you know that there is a light at the end of this long, dark tunnel. So welcome, Tracy. Thank you so much. It is such an honor and you are doing such amazing work. And, you know, we need a whole bunch of warriors out there that are gonna spread the news and spread like hope because when you are in this, it is an ugly and scary place. So having someone like you as a beacon of light is going to help the world. Thank you. And I'm gonna have you tell us a little bit about your story and how you got here. What got me here was uh, finding out about four and a half years ago that I have basically been a victim of narcissistic abuse my whole life. Um, I had divorced a man, it's going on eight years, and I passed eight years now, and I didn't have the verbiage, I didn't know what it meant, but I knew that um, they, the judge called it the most tortured divorce in our town's history. And so um, that was a, a really big thing. That was a, a terrible seven trials, $100,000 just, accusation, accusation, smears. I didn't understand. I just was like, that was my second divorce. And my other one was pretty much signed papers. Here you go. Bye-bye. You know, so to have this thing, it was, it was at right around the time when Casey Anthony had killed her kid or something. And I'm just like, I didn't kill anyone. She was done with the court before me. <laughs> like, what is going on here? Wow. So that was, that was, you know, terrible. But again, I didn't know. And then mutual friends introduced me to their nice friend who had just been divorced. And uh, I dated him for about two and a half years. 
um, when I found out that he had been cheating, I um, went ahead and uh, obviously get out of my life. Thanks, you're done. But um, he, about three months later, I decided after a church thing to go and forgive him. And uh, he called the police and had me put in jail. After you forgave him? His yeah, there to forgive him for, you know, and I'm like, no, I don't want you back, but let's just like, I don't want our friends are going, I don't know who to invite to the party next week. So I was like, well, I'll just go forgive him, whatever. I really didn't care. I just didn't, I didn't want that over my shoulder, right? Forgiveness was a big thing for me. So I was letting it go. And um, he had a new girlfriend there. So he did not want me to meet her. And um, the only thing he could think of was to call the police and say I was trespassing and that he was scared. So I ended up in jail. And when I got out, someone said, he's gaslighting you. Go look that up. So, mm -hmm. And then I was like, oh, my God, my marriage, my mother-in-law, my mother, my sisters, everything just imploded my entire life. So um, I haven't stopped learning. And I, I, I don't know when I picked up my phone to make my first YouTube video or when I set up my, my Facebook group, it just sort of all meshed together. And um, I just started educating people. As soon as I learned something, I was like, oh, you got to hear about this thing. It's called a smear campaign. <laughs> I would make a video about it. So um, I just kept on learning. And on my channel, I, I, I do a lot of interviewing. So mm -hmm. as I interviewed people, I have to study before I talk to that author. And so I just kept building and building. And um, you know, to see somebody who has been through a lifetime of abuse, it's really easy to see why you were sort of a good target, if you would, for someone else that goes, oh, she's willing to do everything? Great. Absolutely. You And you've set up um, this whole podcast perfectly because you mentioned a couple things already, gaslighting, you know, why you're targeted. And it's as different as a narcissist can be from one another. They do follow a script for the most part, and there are definite identifiers. And the, you know, another reason I love to talk to you and share these stories today because there are common threads throughout all of them. And with that being said, when you we identify some of these behaviors, kind of going to the beginning of a relationship, one behavior is very often love bombing. It is the beginning of the manipulation. And I know like, you, you know, you've helped so many people. I'm sure you've heard many stories and have those of your own, but what can you share with us around love bombing and some examples of that? Well, love bombing is, is obviously when, when they're in the, 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 there's three stages of abuse. So it's idealized, just devalued, discard. And so love bombing is, is one of the tactics to kind of hook you, if you would. It's, it's a tactic that makes you the most important special person on earth. Like they can't live without you. How did I ever make it my whole life? And, and they just suck onto you like, like a Dementor in Harry Potter. They're, they're sucking out your soul while like filling up your heart like no one's ever seen it. Um, for my husband in particular, um, we work together and um, he just like swept me off my feet at work and would send me six dozen roses, not one, six. Hmm. He would buy like a 12 foot tall teddy bear and leave it in my cubicle at work. And I would like, what? Wow. Um, he would just do all these over the top 
I have to show you how much I love you kind of a thing and whirlwind we were in, in um, Connecticut at the time, but you know, let's go into New York and always thinking about like, oh, the whole time it is coming to the museum, let's go. Always being a planner, which coming out of my first marriage who was not narcissistic, was all of a sudden someone's gonna make plans, not me? Oh my gosh, you know, everything I didn't have from my first relationship, he's quickly became. I want to add this part because I think viewers don't realize the connection. I had a son at the time he was eight and uh, he loved bomb my son. That was a, a tactic that he used to, first of all, my first husband's son's father didn't go to the soccer games and didn't go to the baseball games and didn't do the things that I wished he could have. That's why I left him. So all comes, you know, new boyfriend and he's showing up at the game and sitting there with a bunch of parents and it was like oh he loves my child um when my son was eight at that point he um he threw him a two thousand dollar halloween party like five smoke machines and steam and fog and electronic witches and you know there were eight little eight-year-old boys that's all it was not, but the $2,000, I was just like, okay, that's too much. Stop that. Stop that. I felt awkward and weird. I'm like, this isn't good, but, but I love your son so much. I, I just know him everything I can give him. And it hooked my heart. Sure. My husband one didn't have those things. And now guy coming along going, oh, he's so wonderful. I can't wait to be his father. You know, like, I think he, he probably said that within the first like months of meeting him. Sure. Uh, no, I think he proposed in a fake way early, early on in the relationship, which was future faking, right? When we do this and when you're part of our family, it's so it was sort of like, I'm in, right? He just sucked me down the rabbit hole and, um, you know, he became the knight in shining armor. He actually called himself that. Oh, wow. He would walk around and tell people I am the knight in shining armor, which means she's the princess. And, and I was just like, Oh, I'm the princess. I was so naive. Um, but again, coming out of a divorce, I was already dating him in the year that it took to get the divorce. I was already dating him for six months. Right. And so I'm wounded. I haven't recovered. I haven't healed. I didn't even know what was going to happen. And all of a sudden I'm just swooped up and, um, sure. that's kind of how he hooked me. And, um, that's, you said something really interesting because one operative word over the top. So red flag, I always like to say they almost give you no choice, but mm -hmm. fall in love with them. They, and, and with that being said, something you just made me think of, they learn, they listen and they learn and they listen and they learn. So he tailored his love bombing specifically to what Tracy was, you know, not, not just, oh, I think I'll do this. I'll think I'll do that. He listened to how to hook Tracy, mm -hmm. correct? And Absolutely tailored his love bombing to make sure you had no choice but to fall in love with him. I had no choice. And I was being swept off my feet, like with, you know, imagine too, the fact that we worked in the same building, mm -hmm. right? Every lunch was with him. And while I had been there for eight years before he was, all of a sudden the lunches were at his friend table and, and they were all the senior managers in the company and Priceline.com. It was a big, big thing, right? But it like changed my life. Like, where's my friends, right? And right. then suddenly my friends could come to the big people table, you know, and, and it was just, it was, it was set up so, um, so professionally, if you could say. Yeah, yeah. 
And we'll get to this later when we talk about um, green flags and, and some more, some things like that in part two of the show. But I think that that's where boundaries come in. And I love, I've listened to you talk about that before. And, you know, that's how those folks get to the people they're targeting because there are none. So, um, because we do have a choice, but, mm -hmm. <laughs> but if we don't put up the boundaries, then, then it makes it easier for them to make us think that we don't. And within all of that love bombing, um, well, really any stage of the manipulation, and you mentioned this before, the gaslighting. So anyone who's researching narcissistic abuse is going to come across the term gaslighting over and over. Um, and so could you explain that a little bit more to us and tell yeah. us the stories? So, so gaslighting is, is a form of obvious um, you know, manipulation to convince you of things. It's almost coercive control to, to make you think that something happened when it didn't. So, you know, they can say things like, oh, you're not remembering that right. Oh, and, and it is part of that devalue stage where everything was so perfect in the beginning. And then suddenly, oh, did you have to say it that way? I think my mother might have taken offense or, you know, just, oh, then, then what happens when they do that is, oh, I'll fix it. I'll make it better. Oh, you know, and, and you push even farther towards them to try to fix it. And, and one of the biggest things on the gaslighting wheel with my fam with him and, and my family was um, when we had first moved to our new house and um, we needed stuff. We need to buy a house. You need new stuff, new garbage cans, new this, new that. Mm -hmm. So he took all of his um, American Express points and bought, I think it was 13 or 15 $100 Home Depot dollars, you know, cards. And they came in an envelope to him. I remember the envelope FedEx. It was sitting there next to his bed forever. And then it was gone. And he said, I threw it away. I got rid of it. And I'm like, I don't even go on your side of the bed. That's just like a hell spot. I don't touch it. I don't go near there. And if I had touched them, they would be in the file, alphabetized and like neat and organized. So there was sort of a like, you know, cognitive dissonance. of I know I didn't do that. I know I didn't. But that became the family joke. That became gang gaslighting, where everyone would be like, oh, you're not very good at remembering where things are. Remember the Home Depot dollars? Mm -hmm. And they'd bring it up and rub it in my face. And, and I gave up, stop like arguing. I would say, no, I didn't touch them. I didn't touch them. For years, I would just proclaim that. And, and I knew it was true, but it just wasn't worth it. Because now a whole family around a, a kitchen table is sitting here going, Remember how forgetful you are? Yeah. And I was just like, no, I know I didn't do that, right? And and eventually we just like know that it's just not worth fighting. And we sort of surrender to it just to keep the peace. But it became then the, the, the gang thing that they would do. And, um, you know, when they're telling you all of these things that, um, you know, that that never happened or, or you're remembering it wrong or, you know, if you're reacting to something, oh, you're too sensitive. So yeah. all of those sort of things are brainwashing. They're brainwashing you to think that you're not good enough. You can't do it right. And it really never happened. And yet you're somehow to blame. And, and people pleaser, I had a lot of work to do. Trust me. Um, I had to learn. I always, I'm always like compliant. I'm the people pleaser. I'll do anything to make anyone happy. Sure. But when the lies started happening, like I didn't know the word. And I would just sit there with, I, I would be very confused and go, 
how could you even say that? I, I didn't do that, you know, and, and it was very slow. It definitely was a drip, but yeah. mixed in with 80% love bombing. He just like had that one weird thing. And then he swoops you up, throws a 10 foot teddy bear in your lap. And you're just like, okay, well, I guess that's, that's over. We're, we're at this now. And it, t- it throws you off your game. It does. It does. And it is death by a thousand paper cuts, all those little comments and you, they kind of sting but you look and they're laughing or they're whatever. And you start telling, you're making excuses. Maybe I took it wrong. Um, you know, then the love bombing comes after, okay, clearly, you know, that was no big deal. I'm making a big deal out of it. And one thing I always try to tell people is, or ask, do you constantly feel like you're in trouble for something? Mm-hmm. So like you're constantly behind the eight ball, you're always trying to make up and you're the people pleaser. They chose you for that. So there is always something you're in trouble for. You can never win. You're never ahead. Yeah. No, and and I I had married into a very wealthy family, and um, you know it, it's not like we were you know chopped liver. I grew up on the water with a, a you know fifty foot yacht. My family we didn't we were not like pond scum here. Sure. We I thought we were equals. They just thought they were like old money, and so this false pretense about the, the money and um, sort of like at first he loved the fact that I was not some debutante queen like he'd had before that his parents tried to make him marry but I was like the normal and healthy and 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 nice person and then that thing that he loved so much about me that I wasn't like them mm-hmm. being what he hated the most in the end you're always making this about class. Why can't you do this? Why can't you do that? And, you know, I, I was, I, I couldn't receive. I tell you that this is something I had to learn mm-hmm. that despite that they had all this money, we would go on these extravagant, crazy hundred thousand dollar vacations. And I, I had horrible times. The first yeah. time I came back, I was sick for six weeks in bed, almost hospitalized. And I couldn't figure out why. I'm and sure. every year we would go back. I would just be like, this isn't fun. This isn't fun. I'm not, this is the fighting. I didn't realize how much, despite the fact that his family said that they were so close and so loving and that they would die for one another. Why did, when we went on vacation, was the grandfather punching the sister in the face at a dinner table at a five-star restaurant? I'd, I'd leave there and I'd be like, oh, shaking and freaking out. And then when I would say, you know, like, I don't want to go there for Christmas this year. It's just not fun. And then I was an ingrate. Mm-hmm. I had all the money and I wasn't appreciative of what they were giving us. And I was like, I appreciate it. I just think that I just don't want to be yelled at or have them yell or, you know, all of the rules that made them in their, their high level, if you would, of, of who they thought they were. They were very much Leona Helms. Little people don't pay taxes. And this is how we do it. And you must learn the behaviors. You must go to sex with Avenue and buy your clothes. And I'm like, I'm really good at TJ Maxx. And, and they didn't like that. So he would take me on shopping sprees. I was like pretty woman. We would have four or $5,000 of clothes to bring on this stupid trip. And, and I wear them. And when I would wear them, they were never good enough. Like mm. it didn't matter that I had never owned a $450 blouse. I would wear it. And his mother was going, it's a little common. Wow. And I was like, $450, like that's freaking crazy. That's and crazy. I was... I was wrong for picking that out. I could never win. And and the abuse with those narcissistic families is also common. You know, and again, when I'm talking to people in the midst of divorce with these high conflict personalities, yeah, they so often 
get just bombarded by the entire family. And yeah, that stress level over time Mm -hmm. is just absolutely debilitating. And um, yeah, and it's, it's so upsetting. And like you said, then when you find the words and you start to research and you start to learn, there's such this aha moment, like, oh my God, this is, this is a thing. This is a thing that happens to other people. This is a thing that, you know, it's not just me. I'm not going crazy. Um, you know, and all these sad and stressful feelings I've, you know, have are part of a vicious cycle. Along with that, um, narcissists love to isolate their victims as well. I, which is another tactic I want to talk about next. I, um, and it can be from the subtle to the absurd. I, I have a friend who was in 16 years of marriage and in a marriage with a narcissist. And she said she can think back now that she knows the words and she understands what their methods are. And she remembers the first time he started to isolate her. And it was with a coworker, uh, somebody she was very close with on her sales team, this other woman that, and she came over to visit. And well, when she stepped out of the room, she came back, her husband later said to her, you know, when you left the room, you just heard these horrible things she said about you and asking me like, why, why her? Why do you like her? Like what, what's she was devastated because it never crossed her mind that this unbelievable man who was love bombing her at the time would ever make something up like that. And so she slowly let this wonderful friendship fade to black and fizzle out because she was just devastated. And of course, years later, she realized that that was just one of many isolation tactics. And I'm sure you've come across many more. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a weapon, right? Isolation is a weapon in the arsenal of how to control someone. If you don't, um, if you don't have control of them, then you're going to lose your power. So they have to, they have to take away your best friends. They have to take away your family. And, and that's what my husband did was, you know, immediately his family was the good family. And, you know, we'll always be there for you because remember they told us they'll die for one another and now you're in the family. So they'll die for you too, but your family's a little messed up, you know, sorry about that, but you know, really you're okay without them. And he isolated me from my sisters. He talked bad about them. He, you know, and and much of it might've been true, but it was intentional. And I ended up with you know, the, the family just sort of walked away. They were like, wow, this is so bizarre. They, they're just at my wedding, like my family and his family, like oil and vinegar. And mm-hmm. they just separated from each other. Um, I remember our wedding was at their home, which is a very big house. And um, my brother and my brother-in-law came to look for me, like getting ready room. And they just like, yelled at them and like they didn't know who they were there were only 17 people that night we had two weddings one first night and then another one and they just like yelled and screamed at my brother how dare you walk around our house looking for her how dare you and like from that point everybody was just like okay then you know and once you start going on vacations only with them and we did family vacations with his family at least two times a year and we were not allowed to go anywhere unless his parents gave us permission. Wow. We would have to go to them. And, and it was a, a, a mama's boy, daddy's boy, whatever you're going to call him. But, you know, oh, we're thinking about going here, mom. Like, what do you think? Is, is this okay that we go down to Key West? And, you know, he needed permission as if they controlled our money or they had some kind of influence over our, our life. Sure. He isolated me at work my friends, um, especially at the end, you know, when I was there, it it was pretty solid. But when the divorce hit, uh, 
he was back east where they were and he befriended people that i used to work with like for 10 years next to each other he hated them he hated them the whole time you know, like they're moochers and they're this and i don't like them and I, and then as soon as he had the opportunity he grabbed them all up and told them all those fake stories about me yes and they were off my list of friends and, and i was a devil because the stories he was making up were just horrifically you know untrue yes but, and I want to, and I want to get more into that later as well in part two of this, because, and I think um, it's often something that sort of happens at the end is the desperation really sets in with them and they're losing control. But to have that feeling when you're married with someone and you're suffering abuse from them and then the ex extended abuse from their family. And like you just pointed out, you were being controlled by him. You're being controlled by his parents. I mean, and so the victim just endures you know, the, possibly years and years of this horrible abuse. And I often hear, well, I was just always told marriage is hard and I got to keep at it. I got to keep working. You know, this is, this is how it is. And I love them and it's worth it. And, and, um, you know, and so they really, they get you, but then when they start to lose you. Yeah. Well, what I want to say to that, which is, is a really important um, point for your, your audience is that, you know, some marriages are verbally abusive the whole time. They might be physically abusive. You see it. I didn't see it until after I was out. I, I was sick to my stomach. I was physically sick from the, the internalization of this weird behavior and this like strange dichotomy in their family. Um, but I didn't know it was abuse. And he was never like really verbally screaming and yelling at me it was when we went through the divorce that uh, the light switch happens, you know, that narcissistic injury, and, and this was his idea, but like, boom, it, it just flipped in, and I was in the black. I was never gonna do anything right, and you're the enemy, and that's where, you know, those seven trials and $100,000 divorce showed me how crazy they were. How could they make up these lies and, you know, just try to ruin me financially, which, you know, they did their best and it worked for a while. <laughs> and thank you for pointing that out because like you said, there often there is no physical abuse and we have to get the word out that these other forms of abuse are just as horrific because they use many tactics. It's emotional, it's verbal, financial, which is something I'm very passionate about. Um, and, and they're all worthy of a hotline phone call. Absolutely. And then the passive aggressive behaviors, I, I would say that my husband, you know, really nailed that down when he would pout and if he didn't get his way or God forbid you asked him to take out the garbage. Um, he had no responsibility at all in our home. Um, and yet if you said, hey, how about this, you know, you were the devil spawn and and then he would not yell, but he would act in anger. He also turned on my son. And he physically twist his arm, twist his hair, pull him down to the ground um, because he could. And because he, he needed to break up that isolation between mother and daughter. My son and I were so close and it, it threatened him. And so he had to just keep harping on him. And, and, and that was the worst part of it all. Sure. So going, going through other people to get to you and even something like silent treatment. Silent treatment when used to manipulate someone, especially over time and multiple times, is abuse. Mm -hmm. And 
treatment is powerful. Because it internalizes, what did I do wrong? How do I have to fix it? What did I do? What did I do? And they're just sitting there like a rock. And, you know, there's nothing. So I, I just had a flashback as we were talking of, of nights in our living room. And, you know, at the beginning, you're on the same couch and you're curled up and cuddling. And, and then eventually it became Archie Bunker's chair. Mm. And he would isolate me, surrounding himself with about 10 computers. Mm. And there was a wall. Like, I'd come over and be like, I'm going to sit in your lap. And he'd be like, don't do it. Don't do it. They're computers, computers, you know? And it was like, I, I, you just felt terrible when they would do those things. Yep. Absolutely. I was the guy that loved Bomney. Yeah. Oh, they're gone. Long gone. Long gone. <laughs> well, Tracy, thank you so much. I'm going to wrap up part one of this podcast. This has been awesome. Thank you for sharing these stories so far. Very helpful and just raising awareness and hopefully letting folks out there know that they're not alone, like I said. So thank you. And we will be back for part two of Out of Crazy Town, your guide to divorcing a narcissist. And um, you can't make this shit up. Thanks, Tracy. <laughs>